Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's Yoma class. I want to give a couple of prefatory remarks uh, today before we jump into the text, and then in successive weeks we'll jump into the text more quickly. Uh, this is going to be about a 15 or 20 minute uh, teaching. So clearly not enough to get through all of a tractate by any means, but enough to get a flavor of it. So the mission itself, I know that some of you know what it is. Some of you I see on this um, on this call are our Mishnah mavens, studying studying Mishnah regularly and passionately and devotedly. And for some, it's a, a newer text, a newer, newer idea. I could spend three hours just discussing what the Mishnah is. The simplest way of describing it, but it's, an, it's kind of unfairly simple, is that it's the earliest codification of rabbinic law and rabbinic lore, uh, re- composed of material that both predates the destruction of the Second Temple in the year 70 CE and, and mostly postdates it. There are some texts that predate it. So material from around the year zero to around the year 200 to 20, codified by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince in the land of Israel. And it's a distillation of, of, of what happened in real life as the Torah became a document that was lived through, right? So the to- Torah at its giving, no one knows the future. So when the Torah was given, no one had any idea that it was going to launch a civilization that was going to live by it. But it did. And depending on how you <coughs> historicize the, t- the Torah texts, about, <coughs> sorry, about a thousand years later, think of how much development of civilization and society happens in a thousand years, right? Even if society grows slower then than now, right? right? For us now, sometimes 10 years feels like a century. A thousand years is an enormous amount of time for culture to uh, self-organize around a set of principles. And about a thousand years later, there was already a thriving Jewish culture, although parentheses, we don't really know how large it was. We don't really know to what extent the law that was discussed in the Mishnah was followed um, closely. Was it by hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews? We just don't know. There are some theories that suggest that uh, this, this, this um, enduring rabbinic canon, which is unbelievably complex, may have been interesting to a very small minority of the people who were Jews at the time, which, by the way, is the case now, right? Like, there's only a small minority of act of, of identified Jews who are deeply steeped in Jewish texts. Um, but they decided that they were going to write down uh, how the verses from Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers had created a society itself. Um, and it was called the Mishnah. Uh, Mishnah is a double entendre. Uh, it's built from the word lishanot, which means to teach. Like b'shinantam levanecha, you should teach them to your children, uh, from the from the Yehavta, and also from the word shnaim, which means two. Number two, the second coming of Torah, as it were. By the way, another parenthesis, the Rambam Maimonides, who was about a thousand years after the Mishnah, does the double entendre again, again, because he calls his um, his comprehensive code of Jewish law, Mishneh Torah, written in the rabbinic Hebrew style of the Mishnah. That's the Mishnah part. And Mishneh Torah, which is also one of the nicknames for the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Devarim, the Rambam said is Mishneh Torah. It's the teaching of Torah, and it's the second coming of Torah. It was Maimonides' not-so-humble way of saying, if you read my book, you'll know everything you need to know about the Torah. Okay? Um, once again, because we don't know history uh, going forward, only backwards. 
it, it's almost mind-boggling to me that the rabbis who put this material down spent so much time, uh, so carefully creating and then organizing and curating this text because they had no idea that 2,000 years later, in the middle of a pandemic, Jews would be on a Zoom studying it, right? When I write something now, do I, do I have any conception, any, any like a ridiculously haughty conception that in 50 years someone will care about it, 2,000 years later we still are living uh, a Jewish society that is based around their principles. So um, it's, it's perhaps... It's it's not the it's not the thickest of the Hebrew canon, but maybe it's the most important because it set out the foundation of a tradition that was connected to the book. Okay, so that's the Mishnah, Masechet Yoma itself. Um, before we actually jump into the first uh, Mishnah teaching, and don't worry, when we get there, I'll share a screen so you'll have this the um, the text in front of you. Yoma Yud Vav Mem Aleph is the Aramaic word for the Hebrew word, hayom, the day. When you put an aleph at the end of a word in Aramaic, it, it gives it a direct, uh, a direct, a, um, a definite article. So yoma is the day. What day? Yom HaKippurin, right? Yom Kippur. Um, in, it's interesting that in the, um, two things are interesting. Number one, the Mishnah is a Hebrew text, almost exclusively Hebrew, not Aramaic, which is the lingua franca that the Jews spoke back then. And the commentary on the Mishnah in the Talmud is mostly uh, written in Aramaic. But in uh, the Mishnah is almost entirely Hebrew. So it's interesting. It's one of the few places where you see Aramaic in a title of a tractate. Right. So this is the name of a tractate, Yoma, written in a language that is not the language that the tractate itself is written in. Um, <clears throat> the Talmud sometimes refers to Yom Kippur as Yoma Rabbah, the great day. So this is a truncation of that just to the day. And in the Tosefta, which is a word that some of you know, but not all of you know, which is a parallel collection of rabbinic teachings from about the same era of the Mishnah, but not included in the Mishnah. Tosefta means extra, right? In the Tosefta, the name of this tractate is not Yoma, but Yom HaKippurin. Just notice the... the um, the, 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 the crossing there. Mishnah is a Hebrew word, but in the Mishnah, the name for the tractate is Yoma, an Aramaic word. Tosefta is an Aramaic word, but the name of this tractate in the Tosefta is Yom HaKippurim, Yom Kippur. There are eight chapters in Masechet. I forgot, you know, I don't know how many Mishnayot it actually represents. Somewhere between, you know, six and twelve Mishnayot per chapter. So, I don't know, do the match. Maybe there, you know, eight times, maybe there are eighty or a hundred Mishnayot in this chapter. The first seven of them, actually, let me start the other way. Only one of them has to do with aspects of Yom Kippur that are anything connected to your observance of Yom Kippur, except for the Avoda service in the middle of Musaf and the Torah reading. Meaning the first seven chapters of Masechet Yoma are all dealing with the Kohen Gadol. It's basically a rabbinic commentary on Parshat Achremot, describing the service of the Kohen Gadol in the Holy Temple in Yom Kippur. And there's one chapter, the last one, on fasting and tshuva, right? All the things that we think about when it comes to Yom Kippur. What I'm going to do, even though there's seven material, seven chapters of the, of the first topic and one on the second topic, I think I'm going to spend three of these sessions in one of those areas. I haven't decided which you can get three, which is going to be two, and two of the sec, two of the week at, of the weeks on another section. In this way, Masachet Yoma, which is in the second section of Mishnah, there's six sections of Mishnah. Each of those sections is called a seder, an order, like, you know, the word seder from Pesach. This is from the section called Moed, which means holiday or appointed time. Masachet Psachim, 
which you can uh, figure out pretty easily is, is about Pesach, is built a very similar way. Masechah Pesachim has ten chapters. The first nine chapters have to do with the sacrifices and all the notion of Pesachim that that were um, you know part of the holiday when the temple stood. And it has one and only one chapter that deals with the type of things that we associate with Pesach, which is the Seder. In fact, when you read the tenth chapter of Pesachim, it's almost like reading the Haggadah, except that it had it was it was at some point fleshed out. So Masechet Yoma is constru- is um, constru- uh, constructed in the same way. The first chapter, so the first of the seven filled with the Kohen Gadol's work in the Holy of Holies in Kippur, is all about the preparation. By the end of the first chapter of of Yoma, we're not yet in Yom Kippur. We're all in discussing how the high priest would get ready for this sublime, weighty task, uh, reminding us that the um, that 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 singular person, the high priest, had an enormous amount to do on that day by himself. If you're still in shul during the avoda service of Yom Kippur, or you pay attention during the Torah reading or to Parsha Achraimot when it comes to it in the cycle, you see these three cycles of, of atonement rituals that he does for himself, for all the high priests, for his family and all the, all of the, uh, all the people of Israel. But he also wasn't just responsible to offer the sacrifices for Yom Kippur. There are daily sacrifices in the temple that were not suspended on holidays. So he also had to do the morning, the, the regular morning sacrifice, the regular afternoon sacrifice, and all the rituals therein. He would begin to get ready for this task. In Judaism, it is considered a very appropriate thing to prepare for something significant, which is why we don't start davening with the Shema and the Amida. We start with the Pesuke de Zimra. Right? Just to give one example, we're not supposed to sh- start preparing for Shabbat just before candlelighting, even though if you're home with anything like mine, we're always scurrying around the minute before. According to the rabbis, you're supposed to do Kavod Shabbat, the honor that is due to Shabbat, by preparing well in advance, because you don't want to just run into something sacred. Uh, he would begin this preparation for Yom Kippur seven days in advance. Seven days in advance takes you to right after Rosh Hashanah. So right after Rosh Hashanah is over, and rabbis around the world start writing the Yom Kippur sermons, the Kohen Gadol would start preparing for the, his, the most significant duty of his, of his role. Um, and the reason why he would begin seven days in advance and separate himself from his family, which we'll read about in a second when we look at the Mishnah, is so that he could stay in purity and tahara. Some of you know I hate using the word purity to describe tahara, but sometimes it's the only English word that works. It doesn't mean pure as opposed to like, Pure like good as opposed to impure is bad. It means pure for the purposes of doing holy things. He would live at or near the Holy of Holies. So he had like a little apartment. We'll look at that in a second. And during that entire week, most of the hours would be spent with the elders, the Zekinim, reciting to him the regimen of what he was going to be expected to do so that he would become even more expert at it than he had been. Okay. So with all that in uh, prep, I want to share with you the text itself. Hold on one second. Sorry, I'm not nearly as facile with these things as our great Rabbi Shatz is. It'll take me just one second. Okay. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? Where'd you go? Okay. Hopefully you can all see that. Everyone can see it. I just have to set up my screen so I can see it. 
um, easily as well. Sorry, folks. Okay. So um, what we're going to do uh, quicker than I want to because this material is so rich, I'm going to read through the first uh, Mishnah of the first chapter relatively quickly just to translate it. It's translated right there, but to translate it in real time. And then we're going to go back through it a little bit slowly. So this is the first Mishnah of Masechet Yoma, the tractate of the Talmud dealing with um, Yom Kippur. Shivat Yamin, Kodem Yom Kippurim. If you know basic Hebrew. Um, oh, by the way, I want to say something about basic Hebrew. Ruminate in this for a second. It is just remarkable and very rare in civilization that you have a text, a legal text, written 2,000 years ago, that if you know basic Hebrew, except for a percentage of the words that are just vocab words that are fallen out of use, you can read this text like you're reading the newspaper. Part of that is the brilliance of the rabbis in writing in clear Hebrew. Part of it, of course, is the brilliance of Eliezer ben Yehuda and his cohorts for reawakening the Hebrew language. And part of it is the determination and the grit of the Jewish people to continue living and davening and studying in this language. It's just, sometimes I just have to pause and say, I can understand a text from 2,000 years ago, mostly from my fourth grade Hebrew knowledge, um, except for very specific vocab word that is true of the Mishnah. Less so about the Talmud, because the Talmud is written in Aramaic, mostly, and the Aramaic is, is a harder language to unpack. Shivati mim kodam yom ha-kippurim. Seven days before yom ha-kippurim. Yom ha-kippurim is the rabbinic way of referring to yom kippur. Mafrishim kohen gadol mi beto. The word lahafrish, peh, Pei, Rei, Shin is the Shoresh, means to separate or to divide. Um, it also means Perush, a commentary, because when you're commenting, you're, you're like, you're, you're separating the plain truth from a more interpretive truth, right? So, Mafrishin Kohen Gadomi Beto, it's a plural noun, meaning it's an unnamed subject. They, some they, some group, would remove the high priest from his house. Lelishkat Palhedrin to some chamber, which we'll discuss more in a second, called the Palhedrin. Here it says the chamber of the counselors. Palhedrin sounds like Sanhedrin, uh, the, um, the group of rabbis who served as the authorities of that era. Uh, it sounds that, because they're both from Greek, but it's not the same word. And they would prepare for him or designate for him another Kohen underneath him. To, um, to to be a backup, Shema Yeirabo Pasul. Just in case, even though he was living apart for seven days, so as not to become Pasul, uh, invalid as a, an officiant in the service, in case something happened, they was like a number two, right? And, and notice that it says not no not not Matkinin lo Kohen Gadol Acher that they make for him a separate high priest, because it wasn't a separate high priest, but they chose one of the non-high priests to be there just in case. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, most Mishnayot have a main statement and then some kind of a disagreement or a refinement by another rabbi. Uh, the first statement is usually not in the name of a particular rabbi, but just, um, it's called the, uh, the Tanakama, the anonymous opening source of the Mishnah. Rabbi Yehuda says, Af We don't just have for him a separate uh, Kohen, in case something happens to him, we have a separate wife set up for him. Uh, Kohen Gadol was not supposed to marry more than one wife, unlike others. Uh, in case, Shema Tamut Ishto, lest his wife die. Seems like a weird thing. What, why are we concerned 
that, I mean, we're concerned, but why are we specifically ritually concerned that his wife might die while he's in confinement? And therefore we have to have like a second wife set up just in case. Shedna Amar, it's a simple midrash on a verse from Vayikra, Vayikra chapter 16, which is from Parshat Acharemo, which we read on Yom Kippur. Because he must, this is being kind of read declaratively, he must bring atonement for himself and for his household. So if, it, if the Torah says he must bring Torah, atonement for himself and for his household and Look at the next line in the Mishnah, Beito, Zoishto, his household, that is his wife. That's a very common understanding, by the way, in rabbinic law. In Aramaic, even the word uh, wife is related to the word house, right? Um, therefore, if he must bring atonement for his household, he must have a household. And if a household is a wife, he must have a wife. It's not just if he has a wife, he has to atone for her. A wife has to be there. So if he's married to one woman and something might happen to her while he's in this place of isolation, there's got to be a second wife, like in, almost pre-engaged, to step in right away. They won't, he won't even know necessarily it happened, because how would he know that his wife had died? He's stuck inside uh, solitary confinement, as it were. But now he will have a wife to bring atonement for. Amrulo, they said to him, who's the they? Whatever group of rabbis who was the, or the author of the first position said back to Rabbi Yehuda, Im Cain, if we really went by your position, Eila Devarsof, the matter has no end, right? And you can imagine what they mean by that. Well, what if the second wife dies? What if the third wife dies? You have to have a hundred women set up so that in case 89 women die of some weird, you know, uh, <laughs> pandemic. Uh, no, I'm not, I shouldn't laugh on that word, but sometimes the gallows humor is required. Um, do you have to make sure that all the way to the end of the line, that there is a wife ready, ready for him. The Mishnah ends there to suggest without certainty, the Gemara picks up on the, on the, um, on the trope to suggest without certainty that the response to Rabbi Yehuda wins the day. That's what it looks like. He said, no, you have to sec- have a second wife set up. They said, basically, that's crazy. That's crazy. It's one thing to make sure that, that, that there's a separate Kohen to do the ritual. But the notion that he has to bring atonement for his entire family, that's secondary to the ritual, not primary. Therefore, we don't have to have a second wife. Okay. What we just did is the simplest reading of the first Mishnah. Um, and one of the things I've learned from one of my friends and teachers, Rabbi Josh Kulp, is there's no such thing as a simple Mishnah. And sometimes the Mishnahs that seem the simplest are the ones that require the most amount of digging in. I'm also aware that it's 827, and this was supposed to be about a 15 to 20-minute thing, certainly over by 830. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start um, going back through this Mishnah with some of the more complexity, and next week we'll pick up there. And to me, it doesn't matter how far we get into the tractate in the study. It's just a study submission together. So I'd rather um, enjoy with you some of the depth of the text rather than just blaze through it. Okay, so let's go back to the, to the language as well. Mafrishin is an interesting word. It's not the only way to talk about dividing someone. And in rabbinic Hebrew, lahafrish has several echoes. Lahafrish chala, to separate chala, right? The mitzvah of chala. We think of chala as the loaves themselves. In rabbinic law, the mitzvah of chala is taking a little bit of the dough from which you're going to make your bread and burning it kind of as a, as a, as a, as a way of saying that not all of this belongs to me. It goes it's like the the the, high, the priests are taking their 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 portion of it, even though they don't actually eat it. It gets burned. So one way the word lahafrish is used is to separate dough from uh, from the main dough from which you're going to make challah. But peireshin prishut also 
um, is used in rabbinic law in the realm of personal intimacy. It's the opposite of pritsut. Pritsut is um, kind of public licentiousness and law and 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 and, and a lack of ethics in in, per, in dealing with intimacy. And the opposite is either tsniut, modesty, or preshut, separation. We know that there are parts in the, in the Jewish world who, to this day, take that extremely seriously, right? Hopefully we take the issues of modesty seriously, but we don't take the notion of, of separating the genders from one another nearly as seriously or nearly as extreme as the ultra-Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox community does, right? I'm saying this right now, hopefully without judgment. It's a different way of understanding uh, what modesty means. But lahafrish means to separate the genders. And preshut means modesty vis-a-vis closeness. So most people read mafrishim kohain gadol mi beito, we separate the Kohen Gadol from his house, not to mean just or even primarily we physically remove him from his house, lest something happen that will invalidate him. But we separate him from his, remember what bayat means in rabbinic, in, in rabbinic Hebrew and Aramaic, his wife. The main goal for this is for him to be alone so he's not with her, because if he's with her, they're going to do things that husbands and wives do, and that might make him invalid because he won't be in the, st- in the, in the status of Tameh sorry, of Tahor, of purity, before Yom Kippur comes, right? Remember that Torah was given originally during Preshut. The 19th and the 20th chapters of Exodus talk about Revelation, where it says for the three days, not the seven days, we'll talk about the seven days probably next week, leading up to Revelation, that men and women had to be separate so that they didn't engage in the things that men and women happily do when they're not separate, which are wonderful and and life-creating and procreating things to do, but not appropriate immediately leading up to issue, moments of, of tremendous sanctity. So that's how most people read Mafrishin Kohen Gadol Beto to where? Lelishkat Palhedrin, to the chamber of the Palhedrin. We'll leave it on a cliffhanger. It's a really interesting word for two reasons. Number one, because the word is probably a bastardization of another half Greek, half Aramaic word, parhedrin, and because it's not the original name by which this chamber was known, and the reason why they changed it from the original name, which we'll get to next week, to parhedrin slash palhedrin, says something very interesting, troubling, but all too real about how Judaism was actually observed way back when, when the temple stood. So um, let's leave it there for now, because I want to I'm promising to have these over by 8.30 to get you onto your day. If there's kind of like a burning question among the group, I will um, uh, take it. Otherwise, I'll say Shabbat Shalom and say we'll do something next week. Yes, Michael. Michael, do you have a question? The, the root that you discussed, peireshin, meaning to, to separate, it strikes me that that's the English word parse. The same same word. Interesting. Um, sometimes those... Um, alliterative echoes are based in an etymological connection, and sometimes it's just luck or accident. I don't know. It would be very interesting to study the etymology. Yes, we need Leonard. Although Leonard (laughs) would tell us like the different ways to understand parash, but I'm not sure he would tell us what the uh, origin of the English word parses. But someone can look up probably in about four seconds what the etymology of parses um, and see what 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 uh, what happens. Um, since we're on this um, this little theme, I'll just give one more minute. Some kids kids 
students in my Rashi class, I can't believe I just said kids, students in my Rashi class know that I talk about this all the time, that three-letter Hebrew roots often come from two-letter families of roots, where the first two letters denote something common to all of the words that they're going to come once you add different third letters. So pay resh, all, not all, most pay resh roots that have three letters, no matter what the final letter is, it's from the family of separate, break apart, lifarek, break apart, lifarets, explode, lifaresh, separate or, um, or parse out, um, lifarade, to depart, right? So pay, whenever you see a Hebrew root whose first two letters are pay resh, it says something, <coughs> something having to do with separating or breaking apart. So let's use that to say that we'll separate and break apart from one another. Sadly, we'll do more Mishnah Yoma next week. I get in Shabbos. All the best. See you around. See some of you on the field tomorrow. Stay cool. It's a hot one. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.